Everybody makes mistakes, but you have to you have to own up. You have to figure out how to fix it. I mean, you have to work the problem. And pointing fingers is not the last thing, but it's beyond the last thing you should do. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Welcome to an extraordinary episode where we uncover the secrets to increasing your company's value. Our guest today is Tony Kotru, a seasoned expert with over 30 years of experience in investment banking and strategic consulting. He'll reveal why driving business value should be your top priority, the limitations of financial statements, the power of delegation, and how to overcome self-doubt. Get ready for captivating insights that will transform your business. Let's chat with Tony now. Hey, Tony, thanks so much for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tyler. Thanks. I think we're going to have a fun conversation. I've had a chance to chat with you a little bit, and you're bringing a wealth of knowledge. I always love to start out with it. Can you share a little bit about what you do? Sure. What I do is corporate advisory, and I've been doing it for 34 years now. Corporate advisory, really, to me, it has, it's, there's some sort of what's the value of the thing that's being transferred here. So I work on transactions for the most part. Okay. And just to kind of break that down a little bit more, when you say corporate advisory, are we talking about like what size business is that going to typically be? I work with, you know, pretty small businesses. I would say from a revenue standpoint, you know, $10 million and up, up to, you know, I generally don't get too involved with, you know, giant companies because you know, when, when you get really big, you call McKinsey or somebody like that. Sure. So typical audience size, probably here, feedback I've gotten from my own audience, probably going to be like one to 10 million annually in revenue. So I would say as much as we can, uh, I think a lot of things transfer anyway, right? So oh, sure. what we're about to talk about. And I work with much smaller ones too. I mean, the- okay, cool. So what's going to be exciting about this conversation, guys, is we're going to get into really where I think And Tony, feel free to correct me at any time. I take no offense to it. Where we're going to talk about value, your biggest asset oftentimes is either your home or your business. And hopefully it's your business because that means you've grown it to a nice size. But we're going to talk about valuation and why that's important. And we're not going to talk about the type of valuation where we're going to talk real dollar valuation in terms of what someone might pay for your business. So Tony, where I'd like to start with is what do you see typically when it comes to entrepreneurs and businesses when they come to engage you what are they looking to accomplish? And are there certain things that you have to right away, like kind of course correct them on in terms of how they're thinking about things? Yeah, a, a lot of times, and I can't even begin to count the number of times that I've gotten calls from whether it's an entrepreneur, business owner, what have you, uh, saying, oh, you know, I just need a ballpark number for you know the value. And usually they'll say, you know, they'll they'll say, oh, you know, I heard that so-and-so sold their business for five times EBITDA. Everybody's familiar with what EBITDA means. And, you know, I kind of smile at that because first of all, let's, let's take it apart. Ballpark number. Okay. Usually this is coming from a business owner who, 
you know, spends every waking hour of every day knowing where every nickel in that business, that factory, whatever. And these are people that'll grind your gears over, you know, a penny on a million dollars of supply. And yet they want to know sort of a ballpark number. So I usually get into it and, you know, we, we find out that what they were really looking for was eight decimal places or something like that. And the second part is, yeah, you know, it's a multiple, it's, it's four or five times EBITDA. Let's talk about, okay, let's say a company, a very small company that has, I don't know, I'll make the math easy, half a million dollars of EBITDA. Okay. It's four or five times. So, okay. That means your value is between 2 million and two and a half million. Are you really expecting me to believe that you're going to take a flyer on a $500,000 gap when I know you to be somebody who pays attention to every detail. So usually, you know, it starts out, I want a ballpark number, nothing fancy, whatever. But what, what really ends up happening is we get into it. We start digging into it. And to me, what it all boils down to is finding the value drivers in a business. What's driving your value? Right. And then just for clarification, if folks don't know what EBITDA is, I'm going to just give a very, that's okay. I'm going to give a very top level. It's not perfectly correct, but for the sake of small businesses, I think it's good enough. Just think of it as your net profit. Now there's some adjustments there that make this not hundred percent true, but it's, it's good enough for the conversation. Is that fair? Do you think Tony? Yeah. You know, some measure of operating cash flow, if you will. Perfect. Okay. So I love, just give me a ballpark figure. I find that interesting. When do you think As a business owner, when should you start thinking about driving your business value? Does it start from day one? I mean, can you be 10 years into your journey and go, man, I really need to start thinking about driving the business value? Where do you think that plays into? You know, realistically speaking, at the very beginning, and I work with a lot of startup companies as well, and, you know, we we talk about it. And I talk to the entrepreneurs about it. I said, look, right now you're in a binary world. You're either not going to make it past next Tuesday, or you're going to be something you know, big and wonderful and, and vibrant. So once the business is kind of self-sustaining, that's where you need to start thinking about driving value. And I always tell business owners, and this goes from you know the smallest you know one million dollar revenue company to you know 60, 70, 80 million dollar revenue companies. I tell them everything you do in your business should be geared toward increasing corporate value. If you're not increasing corporate value, you're not doing the right things. And we all, you know, look, I'm a a self-professed shiny object kid. I get, you know, distracted by things. And a lot of companies, a lot of management teams, business owners, you know, they have to understand you have to stick to your knitting. You know, you do what you're good at. And when you find out what you're good at, do a lot of it. You know, don't get too distracted with with other things. Yeah. And truthfully, the typical entrepreneur, we, you know, oftentimes have a million things going through our head. And it's very easy to like, it's like, like you said, shiny object syndrome. It's some new business segment or, you know, it's just easy to get off path from what you do really well. That's true. I have clients that I work with, and, and there's one client that I've worked with for more than 10 years. And sometimes he has a, a manufacturing company out in the middle of America somewhere. And sometimes he calls me before he does things 
And sometimes he calls me after he does things and I'll say to him, why didn't you call me before? He goes, because you would have told me not to do it. (laughs) And now I need you to fix it. That's hilarious. But, you know, in terms of things that aren't within, you know, your, your bailiwick, your, you know, staying on the fairway there, there have been times with this one particular person where he made an acquisition that was outside of really what he did. And there was a reason for it at least in his mind. And, you know, I had to say to him, you know, first of all, you paid too much. And someone a long time ago, a a person in a very well-known private equity firm uh, told me, you can change everything about a a deal except the price you paid. Mm. So he paid too much. And well, I did it to get, you know, at their equipment. Well, their equipment is not your equipment and you have to customize it to work in your factory. I see it sitting out back being unused. What did you buy? You know, things like that. You know, I, I don't, I don't scold my clients. I just, I try to, uh, I try to uh, be the voice of reason when I can. Sure. So what are those levers? You know, if I were to come to you and I said, Hey, I've got this new business and I really want to think about driving value. What are the levers that I should be looking? You know, it's interesting you say that. And and I was thinking about this just this morning. I was, believe it or not, I was at the gym. (laughs) And, you know, I have a memory that I'll share. When I was first starting out as an investment banker, you know, at JP Morgan, we were going, I was with my boss and we were going to a meeting with a client and talk to talk about a deal. And on the subway ride downtown, he said to me, you know, every one of them is different and they all look just like this. And I thought about the lunacy of that statement, but then I thought about the veracity, the, the trueness and the honesty of that statement. Every one of them is different, but they all seem to follow certain pathways. And what it boils down to for me is value is a function of your the future cash flow of the business how much cash can we generate out of this business going forward and the second factor is the risk associated with generating that cash flow those are the two factors you know you can mix in a bunch of other extraneous things but it boils down to that so in in this case i'll give you a, an example of a, a project i worked on i was looking at a company that does manufacturing. They manufacture a product that you and I use every day. And they're a little company. They're a startup, but they were, they had a manufacturing affiliation or a contract manufacturer in China somewhere. And what I, I was looking at their financial statements. And this is where financial statements are great as a look back, because as I say, you know, when you're driving a car, a rear view mirror is a good thing to have because you can you know, see what's behind you. But if you keep your eye in the rear view mirror and not through the windshield, unless the road behind you is exactly like the road in front of you, you're going to hit something, right? whether it's a, a dip, a tree, a global pandemic, something like that. So anyway, I'm looking at the, the historical financials and I notice a big drop in their cost of goods sold. And I thought about it, I said, they're still making them the same. This is a very simple product. They're making them the same way they've made them for hundreds of years. What could have happened to change this? And I'm looking at it and this is a big, big nut. This is a big piece of their value going forward. And I talked to the client and it's funny, you know, you have to ask the right questions 
you know? So I, after asking questions after question, after question, we finally hit the right thing. What happened in this case was the company, and I'm going to make up numbers again. Sure. The company was doing $5 million of revenue in this product. That meant that their manufacturing in China would set up the machines, you know, make a bunch of this product for about a week because that's all they needed in time-wise to, to make enough for six months supply and then break down the machine and take somebody else's product and make it on there. Once this company reached a critical mass of about seven, eight million. And again, I'm making up the number. Now the manufacturer in China was happy to keep the molds and the pieces on the machine 365 days a year. They didn't have to break it down. They didn't have to put new stuff on it. They didn't have to clean it and redo whatever and reprogram things. That was a huge drop in the cost of of the company. So it's, it was, you know, I used to be an economist. We call those economies of scale efficiencies that come out, but that's not something that I would have, I would have been able to determine just looking at the financial statements. It really took some teeth pulling and, and some, Oh wait, that's what you wanted to know. The, those kinds of questions. And I enjoy that stuff. Uh, okay. I got it. Yeah. So it's kind of looking for it, but getting back to those levers, like, are there any, like, is it as you're getting to the 10 million point, is it maybe creating a leadership team? Is it, yeah. you know, enhancing your processes and systems? Is it anything negotiating good terms with clients? I mean, anything stand out as like, hey, these are things that are going to help that cash flowing things like Yeah, it's, you know, and, and it's hard sometimes because it's hard to go sometimes from being an entrepreneur to being a manager. Yeah, And I'm actually dealing with that right now with a client of mine. This person is used to being involved in everything that goes on. And it really is an inefficient way to run your company. You know, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, you know, hire good people and let them do their jobs. You know, I'm sure I screwed up that quote, but that was the gist of it. So getting people into the right roles is huge because as an entrepreneur, you're a visionary. You're thinking about where things are going. You Making payroll next week is not something you should be focusing on. You need to get people in the chairs to do the jobs that make the company run. You know, a sales force. And, you know, you might re- reach a point where you need not just sale, a sales force, but a head of sales. And sales is different from marketing. So you have to understand that, too. So you might need a sales per, a sales force and a marketing department, you know. So it's really incumbent upon the entrepreneur becoming a manager. And once you become a manager, you kind of have, you know, you have a fiduciary responsibility to the people that work there. And if you've got stockholders or a board of directors, you know, you have to, you can't be Julius Caesar. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Bad things happen. So I want to shift gears a little bit. And this is somewhat of a generic question. Have you ever really messed up in your career or just messed up? (laughs) How much time do we have? No, you know, I remember, I remember once a long time ago, I was in the investment banking group. I used to work in the emerging markets group. So I was doing deals in Latin America. And there was one deal where we were underwriting some bonds 
and I misquoted the price. I, mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, five and seven eighths, I said, you know, five and three eighths or something like that. And when you multiply this by a number that's got a lot of zeros, it makes a big difference. It's a big deal. Yeah. This is something that really I learned from my dad, to be honest. My dad, my dad was a football coach. He coached for many years and uh, he coached me in baseball and other things. And, and one of the things he taught me was be accountable. If you, you know, if you make an error, be accountable. So after the not very insignificant moments of panic that I had, I literally got up and I went into my boss's office and I told, told him what happened. And I said, this is what happened. You know, I apologize. I, I did it wrong. And, you know, it, it was kind of, it was hard to do. You have to own up to your, to your mistakes, but I did. And, you know, things went along fine. I, I talked to the client afterward and, and we, we were able to, to work it out. There's another time in doing an analysis. And this is where, this is where having a relationship with your client is really important. I made a, a math error, you know, probably, you know, something that, you know, fifth grade arithmetic, uh, but because what I was doing at that time with my client was really an iterative process. We were working through this analysis, you know, in real time. And um, I was able to say to the client, oh, look, wait, I messed that up. We need to redo this. And, and because, because of the relationship, you reach a point in your life where you know you're not, you're not an idiot. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but you have to, you have to own up. You have to figure out how to fix it. I mean, you have to work the problem. And pointing fingers is not the last thing, but it's beyond the last thing you should do. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. You know, everybody makes mistakes, but you have to, you have to own up. You have to figure out how to fix it. I mean, you have to work the problem. And pointing fingers is not the last thing, but it's beyond the last thing you should do. Yeah, yeah. That's great advice. I love that. You know, you had a situation where you actually got on the front lines a little bit where I think you were in a CEO role or a CFO role and it was for a designer. And I, reading a little bit about you, it sounded like you tried to manage expectations of the designer. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think, sure. it, frankly, I think it correlates to a lot of business owners. And Yeah, what happened was, and this was a number of years ago, there was a, uh, a clothing design company and the person... You know, running the company that it was his vision. He was a designer, you know, pretty well-known one in certain circles and decided to start his own, you know, clothing lifestyle design company and did not have a business mind. I, I don't know how else to, to put that. There are things he could do that I certainly couldn't do. I can, you know, I can barely dress myself. Uh, actually, he, he used to point that out. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> but you know, I would I would just rip my hair out because I 
sort of was pushed into the role of, of CFO where I had to really help this individual translate what was in his head to what we can do financially. And uh, that was a very tough assignment. I'd say, for example, you know, there was one, one phone call that it almost turned into an Abbott and Costello skit, but okay, I need money to buy fabric so that I can make the designs for next season. And I'd say, well, we don't have money in the budget for you to buy fabric. What budget? Well, and I was telling him, we don't have a budget for that. Well, if we don't have a budget, then I can go ahead and spend what I want. In his mind, budget was you know, a fence, a constraint. In my mind, budget was the amount of money that we can spend to do this. And going back and forth, trying to explain to him, we don't have any money to do this. There's no money in the budget. To him meant there's no budget. So it's like you know, Montana, it's just wide open. You know, we all come from a different place. You know, we have different mindsets. And so this assignment was was one that I look back on and say, yeah, we did the right thing because we greatly scaled down the size of the company. And and that's hard for somebody with a big vision to, to do, but it's what we ended up doing. We, the investors that were the ones that brought me in, we got them eh, not whole, but most of the way whole. And, and they were able to kind of walk away from, from the situation. And, and, you know, right now this individual is doing what he likes. He's designing clothing on a much smaller scale, selling it. It's unfortunate that the economics didn't work out for him, but living a happy life isn't such a bad thing either. Yeah, exactly. One thing I want to talk about was business divorce, and that could be partners or it could be truly husband and wife. Talk about that a little bit because sometimes those can get really nasty and it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, like, what are your thoughts around that? The worst one I ever encountered was a number of years ago, there were two brothers, you know, and they, at the time they were in their early sixties and they themselves inherited the business from their dad. So this is, this is a company that was literally a hundred years old. Wow. And as I sometimes say, the shareholder agreement that was written was, you know, the worst agreement in the history of bad agreements. It said, okay, when dad dies, he gives the company 50-50 to the two brothers, but it it said that they couldn't, neither of the brothers could transfer any ownership. Hmm. In other words, the one brother could not even transfer ownership to his son. Now, remember, these guys are in their 60s. The son is in his 30s. He wants to He's working in the business. He wants to be a part owner of the business. They could not do that. I don't look, I didn't go to law school, but you know, what happened was the two brothers, you know, about five years before I got involved, decided they hated each other. And there was something that happened between the two brothers and they did not talk. They did not communicate. In fact, their kids were in the business and their kids would fight. So it just was a really toxic situation. And, and I told them, you know, I listen, you have become, you have gone from being a creator or a builder of value to being a consumer of value. In other words, you've gone from creating value, you know, the balloon is expanding to consuming, the balloon is getting smaller. 
So the sooner we figure this out, the sooner we can all go, you know, placidly along and live our lives. So what happened was I had to meet with, you know, brother A on a Monday in their attorney's office, you know, couldn't do it in the, in the building. And I heard the same story. He's a thief. He's a liar. I'm the one that generates all the value. On Tuesday, I met with the other brother and he told me he's a thief. He's a liar. I'm the one that generates all the value. And they were, they were both, well, I don't know about thief and liar, but they were both generating value. One brother was what I would call Mr. Inside. He was handling everything inside the four walls, all of the bookkeeping, the accounting, uh, the finance, but also this is a company that was in a highly regulated, they had a a highly regulated commodity. And if you're rolling trucks through Pennsylvania and you cross into Ohio, you've got to have a different set of permits. Now he handled all of that. Wow. The other brother I would call Mr. Outside, he was, he was the sales guy. He was the, the forward facing, outward facing guy, but also he would do things like if he found you know, a million dollars of inventory that he could get for a nickel cheaper today, he would just write a check for it, boom, and not tell (laughs) his brother. So their books were a mess. Mm -hmm. The company was a mess. So I said, listen, the only way we're going to, they each hired an attorney and the attorneys just threw up their hands and called me and said, here, you get in the middle of these two. So I get in the middle of these two. And I said, listen, first of all, one of you is probably going to emerge as a buyer and one of you will emerge as a seller. Believe me, this is how it happens. And that's true because once we set a value of the company, brother A says, gee, I might be a buyer at that price. The brother B says, I would be a seller at that price. And now we have a deal that we can negotiate. So I fixed the value for the company. And then there were adjustments and things like that. But uh, for the most part, you know, I'm very happy with that. My my numbers were were dead on. The, you know, the, the brother that sold out, you know, he got a check for about $8 million and went and lived his life. And, you know, I know the company, it's still going strong. So it, it was able to handle out of court. That was a big thing. They didn't end up going to court because once you go to court, it gets really, gets really expensive. And I've, I've done this for a you know, more times than I can count. And there have been some nasty situations. I usually get called in. I, I like to say when people want to buy stuff, sell stuff, or argue over stuff. And, <laughs> and the argue over stuff is, it's usually good theater. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting when you say avoiding them avoiding court not only saves them money, but time too, because I'm sure that can drag out for years if they really keep disputing in court and going back and forth and it gets petty. So that sounds like a really big win. That's awesome. That's a great story. Hey, you know, one thing I like to always end the show with is around something you've learned along your journey, whether it be a business or a life tip, there's something you could share with us and perhaps we can apply to our own lives or business. Well, we're bumping up on Father's Day. So what I'm going to, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that my father gave me. And I think I was about 10 years old. You know, I was playing little league baseball and my coach came up to me and we needed a pitcher and I'd never pitched before. And he said, Tony, can you pitch? And I said, gee, you know, I never did it before. I now I don't think so. And after the game, my dad came to me and said, what was what was the coach asking you there in the fifth inning? I said he was asking me if I could pitch. And he said, so what did you tell him? I told him I couldn't. And he 
probably called me a name that I shouldn't say here, but um, it was the 70s. And uh, the piece of advice he gave me was, if somebody ever asks you if you can do something, tell them yes, let them figure out if you can't do it. And that has actually served me quite well. And this is not fake it till you make it stuff. Let me be clear about that. Uh, If somebody's asking you to do something, they probably have some knowledge of what they need done and what you are. Uh, And maybe you're seeing skills in you that you don't see in yourself. And every time I've had that happen, I've kind of risen to it. And it's really been, it's been a lot of the reason why I've been able to do so many cool things throughout my career. I like that. So not a fake it till you make it, but someone might see something in you when they ask you about that and take it to a deeper level rather than just say no up front or it's not something I did. Don't close the door before you kind of fully understand you probably can contribute value, I think is what to summarize. And the other thing is show up. Yeah, show up. Yeah, that's huge. That's a big one. I like that. Good stuff. Hey, so I always put out the show notes at thinktyler.com, your company website, and feel free to correct me, melioraadvisors.com. Did I say that right? Melioraadvisors.com. M-E-L-I-O-R-A-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S. All one word, no hyphen, two A's in the middle there, .com. Perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes too. So for those of you who didn't get the spelling of it, anywhere else if you want, if people wanted to reach out to you where you'd like them to go? Yeah. I mean, go to my LinkedIn page. It's got all my stuff on there. I write a lot of articles. I do a lot of videos. So I uh, try to try to inform and entertain. Uh, I also write a newsletter. So if you want in on that, just shoot me an email or note on LinkedIn and say, hey, you know, here's my email address. Put me on your newsletter list. Goes out to about a couple thousand people around the world. And they, they seem to like it. Uh, what's your newsletter about? My newsletter is about the stuff that I've just been talking about. Usually it's like I wrote one last week about the uh, PGA uh, golf championship was just down the road here. And uh, Walter Hagen, who's a famous golfer and a Rochesterian, he's from right down the, grew up right down the road, said three, three lousy shots and one great shot and you can make par. Golf is a game of recovery. Business is a game of recovery. And so I try to, I try to tie things that happen in the world to things that happen in business. I like that. You have my email address. Please add me to that newsletter. It sounds interesting. I'd love to get it. Okay. Well, hey, Tony, thanks so much for being on the show. A lot of wisdom you shared today. I really appreciate it. And I hope we can talk again in the future. All right. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. 
the Congressional Record Daily Digest, and Electricast Production. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast. Electricast.